So there once was a town that's not anymore. It uh, is the town of Florence, Idaho. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Florence, Idaho, or that you even knew that there was a Florence, Idaho. At one time, it was the biggest city in Idaho. 9,000 people lived there. Um, I one time went, uh, I had a friend visit me from Texas, and he said, I want to see something very uniquely Idaho. So I said, well, we'll go up to Florence. We'll see what Florence is. I, I like looking at ghost towns. We go there, and uh, we drove right past it. Didn't even know that it was there. In fact, the only reason that we knew it was there was because we saw somebody who was a historian. She was writing a book about the city, and she said, yeah, it's right there. And as we looked, it was just forest. We said, there's no buildings. There's nothing. There's nothing here. Yep, it's gone. The whole thing's gone. If you would have never known that there was a city there, you, you would have thought it's just regular forest. It was absolutely amazing. So I was talking to her, and I was asking her questions about Florence, and I said, so what, what was this city like? What was this town like? I mean, 9,000 people. I mean, that's substantial. And the fact that there's no trace of 9,000 people living in one spot is remarkable. Well, she said, well, over there would have been the, the general store. The bar was there. The bar was over there. The bar was there. There was a bar there, too. And she went on and told me about all of the houses of ill repute. And I simply asked, uh, was, there a, was, there a ch- was there a church in Florence? I mean, 9,000 people. And the look she gave me was like, well, why would they need a church? They had a library. They had a courthouse. They had 400 bars, apparently, and all these other things. Why would, we, why would they need a church? And, and I, I, I just thought, how sad is that? That here are all these people that gave up all of their time, their energy, their resources to build a city, to build a town. It's not there. It's not there. And I imagine if we could somehow transport back to Florence, and as people are walking in, and we were interviewing them, and we were saying, okay, uh, are you making the most of your time? They would probably all resoundingly say, yes, I'm making the most of my time. We're very efficient in getting gold out of the mountains. We're very efficient in this. We're very efficient in this. You would say, are you doing good things? And they'd say, yeah, we're, we have a public library. We have a schoolhouse. We have a courthouse. We're doing all of these good things. And I think if Solomon was with us and the Lord Jesus was with us, and we would look at it and we would say, I actually don't think you are making the most of your time. This morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about making the most of our time. And making the most of our time is not just that we are the most efficient people, that we can do the most amount of work in the least amount of time. That's not what we're necessarily talking about. What we're talking about is we're talking about believers who are obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ every day. And that as we make our decisions and as we're obedient and as we're living through life, all those circumstances that come up, we make the right kind of decisions. We're good stewards of what the Lord has given us. And the types of things that we say are things that promote and point people to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be making the most of our time. Not necessarily how many hours can you work or how much work can you get done in the shortest amount of time. So, in Proverbs 12, 7 through 14, I'm going to show you three things here about making the most of our time. First, in verses 7 through 8, 
We're going to see that making the most of our time happens through discernment. Discernment is absolutely necessary in, in um, making the most of our time and even being beneficial to others. We're going to see that when we're making the most of our time, there's actually a benefit that bleeds over past us to people in our family and to people in the community. So there needs to be discernment. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 8. In verses 9 through 12, we're going to see that making the most of our time is a proper understanding of the world around us, of God, of wealth and how we get wealth, and that we are stewards. God has made us stewards. And then lastly, in verses 13 through 14, we're going to see that we make the most of our time by the things that we say, things that are good, things that are fruitful, things that build up. And I would argue that building up is not just saying nice things about people, though that's important. It is always pointing them to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, pointing them back to the text. That's the type of speech that we should have, that which is seasoned with God's grace and with the words of Scripture. So let's, let's go to Proverbs chapter 12, and we'll, uh, we'll pick up here in verse 7. And notice what Solomon says here in verse 7. He says, The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Now, verse 7 really could have uh, went with the section last week where we talked about how to have stability in times that are very uncertain. And we talked about the stability of a righteous person, and the stability of the righteous person is not that they are stable and just strong in themselves, that they just have a strong will, they have a strong spirit, they're not easily moved. <clears throat> Rather, strength is those people who are meditating on God's word, those people who are spending time thinking about God's word, and they're rooted in Christ and in the promises of God's word. They're rooted in the gospel, they're rooted in, in scripture, they're rooted in Christ and in that hope. That, that's stability. And, and we talked about how there, there's a stability when, when you are living based off of the gospel. You're making these right kind of decisions that are not sucking energy out of people around you and out of your family. You're not, you're not causing constant problems. You're not constantly being thrown in jail and then having to call and say, hey, can you waste a whole bunch of money to get me out? There, there's a sense of stability. There's a sense, there's a sense of health. Whereas the wicked and the foolish who do the opposite of righteousness don't adhere to God's word, leave a swath of death and destruction and broken relationships. So here, this verse kind of follows that theme, but, but it is interesting that it says the wicked, the, or, uh, I'm sorry, that the wicked are overthrown. The question is, what do we mean here? What does Solomon mean when he says overthrown? To really understand the definition of overthrown, you must understand this phrase, and are no more, and then the antithesis to that in the second part of the parallelism, which is, and the house of the righteous will stand. So if you can understand that they are, that phrase, are no more, and that the righteous stand, I think you kind of understand this idea of being overthrown. It's the idea that the wicked, from this point on, because of their wickedness, are in danger of getting into some trouble that would cause their life to be upended. Whether that happens on this side of eternity or when they then go stand before the Lord, the wicked will have some sort of 
upturning in their life, an overturning in their life. This is, this is the natural consequence of sin. There will be some punishment for sin. They, they are culpable for their own sins. And so I see this being overthrown as really from this point on, a, a wicked person is in danger of having their life upset. Now, it might not happen in this, in this life here on earth, and it might happen in eternity. But that's still, there's still this resounding sense that it is very dangerous to go against the will of the Lord. It is incredibly dangerous for us as believers to take the word lightly and not be obedient to the scriptures. This is a dangerous thing. The wicked might be upended and they'll go into hell. The believer will suffer the consequence of, of a loving father who disciplines his children. So this is, this is not good. This is not, this is not a good thing and there's not a lot of stability. This is not healthy. And we would all say about this wicked, foolish person that the decisions they are making are not according to discernment. They're not discerning God's word. They're not discerning God's will. They're not thinking about Jesus Christ. They're just making decisions. And those decisions are ones that are, are not good. But then notice it says, but the house of the righteous will stand. A little bit of a debate here on that phrase, the house of the righteous. And I, I'm going to I'm going to say this. I, I see this, this phrase, the house of the righteous, like a spectrum. I, I imagine that Solomon meant all of the above here. I, I don't think he was very specific when he meant house of the righteous. It could be understood as every single righteous person, right? The house, it's an image of all those who are righteous. Could also speak of the house of a righteous person, right? And I, I really could see both here in this sense, that the house of the righteous will stand... Namely, that those who are righteous, those who are being obedient to God's word, that there is an effect of righteousness with everyone inside that you come in contact with and even in your family. Righteousness will influence. Now, sometimes it has more influence than others. But I think, I think the principle is when you are obedient to God's word, you're doing what God asks you to do it and you do it in a loving way, that that always influences people around you and may even influence them to do that which is good. Obviously, it's a principle. It's not a promise. And so I imagine somebody could listen to this and go, well, I've been righteous my whole life, and it doesn't seem to influence my family at all. Well, it's not a promise. It's a principle. But notice that the person who's righteous here would be one who has good judgment and good sense. I couldn't help but think of verse 7, and as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of Daniel. Remember that, remember that account where Daniel was, uh, he was there, and the, the Medo-Persians have taken over Babylon, and the king says, okay, no one can pray to anyone except for me, and Daniel obviously prayed. There was a whole bunch of people that saw him, and they said, let's go get him, and Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and the Lord miraculously rescued Daniel, and we all know the rest of the part of the story and all the people that accused Daniel were then thrown into the lion's den. They and their families were destroyed. And I couldn't help but think of that in this case of here you have this righteous one who was doing what was right and was protected by the Lord because he did what was right. And then there was then these wicked people who were then, they're no more, right? They're no more. Their name is no more. Their memory's no more. Now, notice what he says in verse 8. 
Think about this with the, in line of discernment of making the most of your time. If I'm making the most of my time, I'm being righteous and I'm showing discernment. And that there's a benefit to my, to my family. And then in verse 8, a man will be praised according to his insight. Now, the word for insight here is the word for discernment, to show good judgment. Uh, discernment is that ability to see what is right and what is wrong, to believe what is right and to course, to plan a course for the right obedience, right? So you have this, this person who is listening to God's word, determining what is right, and then doing what is right, and he is going to be praised for his judgment. And I got to be honest, is this not true? I mean, haven't we met people that have lived in the world and they were righteous, they tried to be obedient, they were loving, they were honest, they were faithful, they did all these things? And as they did all these things, didn't they get a ploy of the month because they were honest, hardworking people? There was like a sense of praise because they, were, they showed great judgment. Or somebody who showed up and did their job ended up getting praised by their boss and ended up getting a raise. We, we see this numerous times. We see this all over the place of people who do what is right. There is a sense where the community at large will say, yeah, that was a good thing that you did. And even more than that, I mean, how many of us who, who inside of the church, when we show great judgment, the rest of the church is saying, wow, that's, that's great. And it even influences the rest of the church. So there's this sense that inside of the community, even those who are wise and show discernment, there will be this applause. There will be the sense of looking at that person who is honorable. And then notice the next part, but one of perverse mind will be despised. So one who shows discernment not only has an influence inside of his family, we could even say inside of the church, we could say that a person who shows discernment also has, will be praised inside of the community at large. It influences, the, it's making the most of their time. There's a benefit to the community. But there's that one who does the opposite, who doesn't show discernment, who has a twisted mind, and what, there's no praise for him. In fact, there's a there's, there's despising of this person. And as I think about this, I can't help but think of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this morning. Uh, there are numerous times where as I read the, the New Testament and I look at the life of Christ and he says something, he does something, and I go, wow, that was, that was really smart, Jesus. That was really wise. I, I think of that time, remember when the guy came and said, should we pay taxes to Herod? Or should we rebel and what should we do? And Jesus' answer is give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. I mean, that is an incredibly insightful answer, an incredibly true answer. And we, we just, we sit there and we go, wow, that's, Jesus was a man who had great discernment. You think of the flip side. I'm not too sure how many times when we're thinking about naming something or naming our children, we go, you know what name I've really been partial to? Judas Iscariot. That's a name I want my kids to be named. Not too many jo- Judas Iscariots running around. Why? Well, because of some of his actions. He was very unwise, right? So, so we understand this principle. We understand that to make the most of our time, there must be discernment. We must know what is right. We must be able to determine between what is right and what is wrong, and then choose and plan a course according to following God's will. That is how we can make the most of our time. Those who do not do that, 
do not make the most of their time. And you might end up, if you don't do that, you might end up like the city of Florence. Nothing to show for it. Now, let's go to the next one. Notice that in, in verses 9 through 12, we're going to see that to make the most of our time will include discernment, but will also have this understanding of stewardship. So notice in, notice in verse 9, it says, Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Now, this is kind of a unique statement in this section. So roughly from chapter 10 to about chapter 21 or so, we're gonna, we have this, the righteous do this, the wise do this, the, the good person does this, but the wicked, the foolish person does this. And so every verse has this, here's a good guy, but here's a bad guy. Here's a good thing, here's a bad thing. This one kind of changes it up because it doesn't have that strict, here's what a righteous person does, but here's what a wicked person does. Rather, it's kind of a degree. It's saying it's better to be this one than it is to be the other one. Now, that may be implied in all the other verses in this section of Proverbs. It's better to be righteous than to be wicked. But here it comes out and says it explicitly, where the other one you kind of have to think there. Here he just says it. And so notice that it's better, better is one who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than one who honors himself. And once again, we have a little bit of a, of a debate here over uh, this first part in verse 9, where it says, he who is lightly esteemed. Some say, well, this, is, this may be he's lightly esteemed in the community. And so they would say, well, if you read verse 8, it, verse 8 is actually connected with verse 9. So it would read, a man who will be praised for his insight, but one who is perverse in mind will be despised. And it's better for that one who is despised, who has a servant, than one who, is, who honors himself and lacks bread. So it's the idea of, here's this spectrum of these de- despised people. One guy is despised, but he at least has enough money and he has a servant. He's better off than the guy who's truly twisted and narcissistic and walks around poor. That's how some see it. Others see it as it's not really necessarily a contrast between that guy which is perverse and that guy which is hyper-perverse, but it's actually demonstrating a difference between humility and arrogance. So instead of reading verse 9 as um, one who is lightly esteemed in the community, you could read it, he who is lightly esteemed in his own eyes. Right? So he's, he's, not, he's not necessarily an arrogant person. And I, I think that's probably a better way of reading this. That it is better to, be, uh, to not take yourself seriously and to, to be inconvenienced, willing to be inconvenienced, willing to say, you know what, I, I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I, I, I need to be obedient. I need to be a good steward of what God has. There's really no task below me. I'm going to, I'm going to be very humble about myself. I know who I am. And it's better to be that and not toot your own horn and have enough to provide for yourself and then to be able to provide for another person. That is far better than some clown who says, I am the greatest and I am incredibly principled and I'm the smartest guy. I'm the hardest worker. And he goes to bed hungry, right? We would say, of course, one's better, right? Like... Obviously, the self-inflated view of oneself 
is not intelligent if you go to bed hungry. And I think this is probably the best sense. And so when we think about stewardship and that the Lord has given us stuff that we're responsible for and we're to use these, these things that the Lord has gifted us by his grace as, as opportunities to first worship him, opportunities to provide for ourselves and to then also be a blessing to others, I think it's important that stewardship be coupled with humility. If I am arrogant, I'm not a very good steward because I see the things that I have are for me and for my ends. But if I'm a true steward and I realize that the Lord has given me all of this, all the good things that I have are gifts from the Lord. The job I have is a gift from the Lord. The house I have is a gift from the Lord. He's, he's allowed me to have all of these things and I'm humble and I realize these are really ultimately his well, then I'm not really trying to hold on to these things. I'm using these things to honor and glorify him. I'm using these things to provide for my needs and the needs of my family and for the needs of others. It becomes, an, it becomes a platform of worship and of good deeds. And so, of course, it's better to be humble than it is to be arrogant. And once again, when I think of verse 9, how many of us do not think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed? What did he do? He, he took on a towel and he started to wash the feet of the disciples. And in that culture, to wash the feet of the disciples was, to wash anyone's feet is a, it's a pretty low job. No self-respecting person would wash the feet of another person. In fact, I think that's kind of why Peter gets a little bit indignant. Peter goes, you're the master. You, as the master, it is inappropriate for the master. It's socially inappropriate for you to do this. We have people for this. We have people who are not like us, who are less than us to do this. And as Jesus said, look, there's really no such thing as that which is socially below anyone. He was willing to serve the disciples and the task that he, that he served them in was this one that was incredibly degrading. So here is this one who is the creator, sovereign Lord of the universe, who is willing to do the lowest job for those who served him and obeyed him. And that is the example of the believer. That's how we should view ourselves, and that's how we should view ministry. That I am here as a humble servant of the Lord to do whatever is asked of me. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. On a practical note, uh, how many of us have met people who were too proud to go out and get a job because they were looking for the right kind of job? I remember, uh, yeah, I remember when I was first looking for a job and uh, when I was a young teenager and I was looking for the best job with the best pay, but there were certain jobs that were below me and my father said, what do you mean? Money is money. There's no such thing as a job that's below you. That, that shouldn't even be a thing. You need to go out and get a job. That, that's the most important thing. And so as believers, we shouldn't be too proud as to say, there's really nothing that's below me. I've kind of reached a level where that's, I'm not going to do that. No, and, and as an, on a practical level, on a practical level, humility, it is better to be humble and provide for yourself than to be really proud and toot your own horn and throw out your resume and go to bed hungry, okay? Now, notice the next verse then, in verse 10. It says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. 
Now, we probably could spend quite a bit of time on this particular passage itself. Here, I think what's being contrasted is the compassion of the righteous person and the compassion of the wicked. And here you get the picture of a righteous person who is so compassionate, so empathetic, and has such an understanding of creation that God is the creator of all of these things. He has given us things that we are to take care of that a righteous person even looks at those animals which cannot take care of themselves, which cannot communicate their needs, and the righteous person says, oh, they need to be fed today. They need to have this. They need to be taken care of. And so the compassion of the righteous person does not stop at human beings, but it goes to all of God's creation because there's this fundamental understanding of the God is the creator and that we as worshipers of this creator want to take care of the thing that we have, right? Because that's what it means to be a steward. We're stewards of this planet. And so there's even this compassion that extends to the animals. I think it's really unfortunate that this has been really twisted. This principle has been twisted. Uh, some have, have used this as to, as to, like a baseball bat, to beat people over the head to say, you must be a vegetarian. Let's be honest. That is not what's being said here. That's a far cry from what's being said. However, I would also say, too, that the other extreme is bad, that we should have concern for animals. And, like, we shouldn't be excited if we find out there's a dog fighting ring in our town. Like, we should, we should be upset because that's cruel. However, let me add another little caveat here. We should not be more upset about animal cruelty than we are of humans cruel being cruel to other humans. Obviously, humans are made in the image of God and animals are not. But this means, but it also doesn't mean that we don't care for animals at all. So here we see this idea of compassion, that the righteous people have compassion even for animals, for the rest of God's creation, that, that we want to take care of this. This is part of God's creation. When I, when I look at my dog, he's annoying and he yips and Sometimes I want to punt him over the cow barn. But I, I also understand that he is a creature created by God. And that his mere existence glorifies God. God was pleased to create my dog, John Calvin. And when I look at him, I don't, just don't see him as a product of biology. I see him as a creation of God. And in him, I see God's creativeness i see his sovereignty and it is amazing that the lord has even allowed us to have a connection with animals that even those animals can feel like family members themselves that's incredible and i think that i think as believers that's okay and that should be encouraged now notice this next part it says even the compassion of the wicked is cruel that's a pretty deep statement I thought back to when I was, before I came to know Jesus, before I come to know him as my savior, to realize my sinfulness and place my trust in him. I thought back to my life and some of the things I did. And even as a believer for that fact, um, even this past week, I looked at some of the things that I did. And you could look at some of the actions that I did as a non-believer and as a believer, and you would say, yeah, you didn't disobey. And you did something that looked like what the Bible commanded, 
but you didn't necessarily do it the way the Bible commanded it. So we can't say that you were like driving Satan's limo, right? You're not a full-blown Satanist in rebellion. But you also just didn't do it right. So for example, when I think of good deeds, we think of Galatians chapter 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit. That the good deeds come from those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And as they rely upon the Holy Spirit, there's this fruit and these good deeds which come out of that. And really, the only the good deeds that the Lord will accept are those which come and produced by the Holy Spirit and those who are in Christ. Now, we know non-believers do things that are good. We would say, yeah, that's not, that's not overtly sinful, right? I mean, that, the Bible even kind of commands some of that stuff. Like, think of an animal rescue shelter run by an atheist. We would go, yeah, I mean, it's not evil, you know? That's a good thing. I mean, that's, something, that's good. But their motivation behind it might not be the best. And their execution is not necessarily motivated by the Spirit, but it's motivated by other things. And there's even times where they can be compassionate and cruel at the same time. And so there's never really this idea of, of a purely good deed. There is a deed which is good and mixed with something else. Now, here's the principle then. This then helps us understand who we were before Jesus Christ, that really it was his drawing of his spirit of why any one of us believe, because even the good things that we did still had a lot of stuff baked into the cake. So it has to be the spirit of God working in our hearts. Second of all, this should help us with some of those people who say, well, I can do a good deed, and that good deed can outweigh that bad deed, and God will at the end say, well, that's good. Well, you point to a passage like this and say, can you do that? Can you? Because here the principle is, even when somebody's compassionate, it's cruel, who's wicked. So can you truly have a good deed that the Lord will look at and say, that's a good deed and that outweighs a bad deed? We would say, no, the good deed is even mixed with cruelty, this compassion and cruelty. It's an interesting passage, and, and, and it should show us, it should show us that if we want to make the most of our time, that we should truly be obedient, and we need to be obedient in a biblical manner, walking by the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, and as we're guided by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit by His power for His glory. And as we step out in obedience, it is motivated by Him, and it's to please Him, and it's to help others. That's how we make the most of our time. Now, let's go to the next verse. Verse 11, it says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. So once again, here's this, other, this idea of stewardship. The Lord provides someone with a piece of land. With that piece of land, it's clear that they're able to till the ground, and as they till the ground, it, they're able to provide for themselves. And that is good. It is good for us to work and work for a paycheck and provide for ourselves. That's what the Lord would want. That's a good stewardship of our time and energy. That's worthwhile. It is worthwhile for us as believers to work in the community and work in jobs and be faithful. Sometimes we think that if we're going to change a city, we have to all stop what we're doing and become missionaries and do all this street stuff and do all this yelling through loudspeakers and you have to get all this incredible music. And we have to get all of this dog and pony. I, I, I would disagree. And, I'm, and, and 
the more that I read the scriptures, the more I would disagree with that. I, I think it's far more valuable for believers to work hard and provide for themselves. And as they're working hard and providing for themselves, they're interacting with other people who see their character. And as they see their character, that is the thing that they go, what's so different about you? Why are you so excited to come to a job that's so mundane? Why is there always joy in your life? And as they see parts of your life of family members dying, they realize your life isn't a wreck and you don't have to go to the bar every night to drown your sorrows. They go, how can you cope with such a, such a devastating thing? And you seem to be able to handle this and take this type of stuff on the chin. I think then that is a better way of exposing them to the gospel and sharing with them the gospel than, than maybe the other way, though there is merit for the other way. So I think this is good. This is something that we should strive to do as good stewards. But notice what the contrast is. But he who pursues, who pursues worthless things lacks sense. So what do we mean? What does Solomon mean by worthless? What's a worthless thing? It would have to be that which is contrasted with not working on your own land to provide for yourself. So we could either say it's somebody who decides to work on someone else's land when they should be working on their own, like a busybody. Or it's somebody who decides to go fishing when they should be tilling the ground, right? Or it talks about somebody who says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to till the ground. I'm just going to go steal bread from someone else. All of those would be worthless endeavors. And the people that do those things and are not responsible, they lack sense. I don't think it's wrong to have a hobby or to have some of those things that break up, but I think here it's talking about being responsible. Then notice the next thing in verse 12. It says, The wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the, right, but the root of, righteous, of the righteous yields fruit. So kind of in, in, in following in verse 11, I think Solomon kind of borrows it because notice that the wicked men desire to steal. That's not a good time. That's not a good use of our time, and that's not making the most of our time. But notice that those who are righteous, that root of the righteous, that yields fruit. And notice that it's not only that it provides for themselves, but it's also a benefit to others, and that's the best use of our time is to follow the will of the Lord. Now, quickly, let's just go over uh, verses 13 and 14. Some of the reason that I want to go over this quickly is because it's incredibly convicting to me, and uh, I only like convicting you of your sin, and I don't like being convicted of my own sin. So you can just read this at home. I'm joking. Okay, let's go to verse 13. It says, uh, An evil man is ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. (laughs) I once knew a man who... Uh, said he carried around a toothbrush because he was constantly sticking his dirty foot in his mouth. And there is a sense in which that is true here, right? The words of somebody kind of ensnares them. And, and, and you think about it. You think about people who are not very wise in the things that they say. Uh, they say a lot of foolish things. Uh, you think about those who say a lot of foolish things theologically. They say a lot of things foolishly about other people. They say a lot of foolish things about the truth. Eventually, that stuff will come back and they will be ensnared by them and they will be trapped by them and the consequence of being ensnared by them is demise. So we understand this. We see this. Our culture, for better or for worse, seems to cancel a lot of people for things they've said in the past. And a lot of us, when we look at some of the things that were said in the past, we said, yeah, you probably shouldn't have said it in the past. 
you probably shouldn't have said that thing. And you're kinda, you kind of got caught by the thing you said in the past. Now, I'm not for canceling people, but the principle is sound. The things you say and the things you say on Facebook, they could come back and trap you. So be careful what we say, right? And then notice the next part. It says, but the righteous will escape from trouble. And the question is, why will the righteous escape from trouble? It's because they're not saying those same things that the wicked people are saying. Righteous people, when we talk about things, what's the desire? The desire is, what does God's word say? What does God say? That's the truth. What, what is the goal for every human being? To be more like Jesus Christ, to be like Christ. So the things that we say come from God's word. The goal for the things that we say is that people may become more like Christ. We are told numerous times as believers to say the truth in love, always wanting to build up and never want to tear down. We as believers have mechanisms that when we can go to other believers and say, that probably wasn't the best thing to say, right? That probably wasn't the best thing to do. So as believers, we are constantly watching our mouth. And James warns us of believers that, Look, we've been able to tame lots of stuff. We've even been able to tame rivers and convert energy out of rivers. We've been able to tame lions and tigers and bears. Still haven't caught the Loch Ness Monster yet, but we've been able to tame almost all those other things. But you cannot tame the tongue. How true is that? So as believers, we should be careful. We should make sure that the things we say are biblically true. They're promoting Jesus Christ. They're seeking to build one another up, and point people to Jesus. And in fact, I think that's kind of the insinuation. Notice what he says in verse 14. A man will be satisfied by the, uh, with the good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hand will return to him. The sense is, is that if I say things that are true according to God's word, if I promote Jesus Christ and point people to Jesus Christ, and I'm constantly sharing the truth in love, there will be dividends to that advice given to other people. And those dividends may even come back to me and bless me or bless you for the advice you gave. But let's be honest, how many of us talk to somebody who sought our advice and we gave them advice and we tried to be biblical and tried to promote Christ and they took our advice and it worked out great for them and they avoided certain pitfalls and you just praise the Lord that for his working in their lives, and for the truth of God's word. That's really the best use of our time. We can run our mouth, and that's not a good use of our time. We can talk about a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter. Um, like this morning, we were, uh, Jim and I, we were talking about, you know, Tom Brady, and somebody said, if he wins the Super Bowl, I heard somebody on the radio, if he wins the Super Bowl, he's the greatest athlete who's ever lived. And we thought, and I thought, that is really kind of a worthless debate in the scope of reality. I mean, it might be fun for like 10 minutes, maybe, but you can never really get that 10 minutes back. And does it really build anybody up talking about Tom Brady for 10 minutes? It's a fun debate. I, I enjoy watching uh, athletes, but is that really the best use of time? Would it, would it, wouldn't it be better to say something that's encouraging somebody or, or, or promoting Christ or talking about scripture or talking about some of these other things. Now, I don't want to be a prude and say that we always have to, we can't say a word or a sentence without having a Bible reference attached to it. We can talk about other things. I guess the question I'm posing is, 
shouldn't we at least think about the conversations we have and are they worth the time having those conversations? And the subjects we talk about, are they actually worth it? Is it actually worth the time? Instead of just saying, well, let's, do, let's say what we can say, can we at least say, we can at least think about some of the stuff we say? So I think about making the most of our time, and I think about Florence, and I think this is a really good metaphor of a town that did a lot of hard work, really efficient, by the way, really efficient in pulling rocks out of the earth. They were incredible at it. Got a lot of money out of those mountains because they were very efficient. They had libraries. They had courthouses. What's funny is um, in the middle of the town's history, a whole bunch of new miners came in, and they said, we don't like old Florence. So they moved, you know, a couple hundred yards to the south and started new Florence because the old one was so terrible. And they did the same exact thing. Had a courthouse, a library, all the same stuff. Guess what? New Florence isn't there either. (laughs) Uh, There's a jail. You can see like the outline of a jail, but it won't keep anybody in it. And it's amazing that here are these towns that spent so much time doing so much stuff, trying to build so much, and there wasn't a church in either one. And they're not there. And I would, I would say this for us as believers. We can do the same thing. We can fall into the same temptation. Spend all of our time, all of our energy trying to become the most efficient at other stuff. But if we're not, if we're not focused on Christ and his word, if we're not focused on having good discernment, if we're not focused on being good stewards, and if we're, focused on, if we're not focused on the, saying the right things at the right time, then let's be honest. We too might fall like Florence, and we might spend a lot of time on a whole bunch of nothing. And when people come by and look at our lives, they'll say, what'd you do all that for? There's nothing to show for it. Let us be like Jesus. Let us spend time in his word. Let us make the most of our time, counting our days, making the most of every opportunity we have, to do God's will, and to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. At this time, I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and chuck, and we'll, uh, we'll sing the last uh, 